You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. Paul, did you ever read any of um, Abraham Joshua Heschel's work? Yes, I love him. Don't you love the way he frames faith as living with awe and wonder? Like he has this way of looking at life through radical amazement. Yeah, it's a total game changer as far as how one approaches faith going through his work. And one of the ways that I have often found on wonder is in nature, obviously. Mm-hmm. But we also talk about in this episode the ways in which we uh, have experienced awe and wonder in other forms of creativity and creative expression. For me, I, I remember a dear friend telling me once, listen, Brie, don't become a musician because you want it to be a career but become a musician because it makes you into a certain kind of person. Mm. Someone who pays attention to the world through a certain lens. Um, Someone who's looking for the beauty and can communicate that beauty to others. And I really appreciate the way that he reframed that for me. And I think the arts are a lens for On Wonder in that way. They help us to see and connect with beauty and uh, in the menial, in the in the ordinary, in the everyday. Yeah, I'm so with you. Music can be such a a gateway in the in the midst of the mundanity of life, of the day to day living. And something that we touched on here, which I was so glad, was also laughter. Oh, right. Because I think there's nothing better than sitting around and laughing with another person. And Richard helps us kind of unpack to that place of how laughter is also an intimate shared experience. Yeah. Well, you told me recently something about a a study that I thought was fascinating that connected the relationship between humor and music and how we connect as human beings. Yeah, I had a friend who's an evolutionary biologist who's telling me that um, part of the way that primates evolved was that, you know, they would groom one another as a way of, of being intimate with one another. Right. And then as the group got too big, you can't groom everybody. Can you? <laughs> can you? Can you? <laughs> as the group got bigger, they wouldn't be able to groom everyone. So what they would do as a way of still being a part of the connective whole is they would hum. No way. And then as the humming grew, then they would also laugh. Mm. And then they would sing. And that's where we think the origins of singing came from this kind of group connectiveness, this intimacy that started with touch mm. and ended with singing. Which is why I think for so many of us that singing still feels like a uh, a cohesive group bonding that is that is more than just the sum of its parts. I mean, it makes sense, doesn't it? Like when we're singing together, we're breathing at the same time. Yeah. Our hearts are regulating yeah. with one another. So that is fascinating. It makes a lot of sense. I feel that um, this conversation on on ways that we can access on wonder as a practice is also helpful given the fact that we've been discussing some really heavy topics in this season, yeah. right? We've been talking about uh, the personal is political, Jesus and the empire. Um, what do we do with the Bible? I mean, these are things that are not um, always easy. And even as we face some of these things in our world, sometimes we can feel very weighty or uh, just kind of tend toward the weighty as, as, as a response to everything that's going around us. And, Humor is not to say that we're not taking action, right? And appreciation of the arts is not somehow bypassing the fact that we all have a real responsibility and a role to play. Yeah. But it does change the stance and our approach to how we do those things. If we can laugh, then we can have a sense of humility about our part. If we can sing or appreciate art, we can draw on beauty as a source of inspiration so that what we do is not depleted from the good, the true, the beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it can help us really reveal how we're going to participate in the reality. Whether it is, I mean, like you said, we've covered so many heavy and weighty things that this, hopefully, this conversation also helps highlight that humor and joy is also a part of living in that awe of, and wonder that we see of God's work in the world. So with that, let's dive into this conversation on the practice of awe and wonder. Richard, as we've been discussing um, values and the values of the universal Christ and how we can live into them more fully, one of the things I'm experiencing in my life right now is this 
deep desire to have my values match up with my life as we discussed mm-hmm. in that first podcast. I'm still doing the same. <laughs> oh, so it takes a lifetime. Never good. change. Good, good. Yeah. Uh, but in particular, uh, this desire that I have to move toward wanting to live a life of integrity, simplicity, and slowness. Um, our world is so consumeristic and oriented to having that in turn it drives us to this kind of frenetic pace and obsession with our work where we're not even present to ourselves or the beauty that's around us in any given moment, right? Because we're just distracted, stressed, busy. Can you offer a word for those of us who are in our first half of life about how we can do this first half of life in an alternative way uh, that in your words is the freedom of not climbing so that we can live a bit more attuned to awe and wonder? You know, I'm going to start with maybe an answer that will seem surprising. I'm not going to say, well, be detached from it or take one day a week of silence. That'll be fine if you do that. But here's my experience at this point in working with people. Those who do the first half passionately, even overdoing it, not always, but I'm going to say more often than not, bring passion to the second half of life. (laughs) So I'm not going to say to not gun your engines. Uh, You were just at uh, St. Ignatius's place at Montserrat. I don't know the life of Ignatius, but I could see it in Francis. Francis in Assisi was called the king of the party goers. Mm. Uh, He was a knight as Ignatius was a knight. Uh, It seems like people who, who, um, who attack life with caring attack the spiritual life with the same intensity, mm. with the, ta- the same uh, immensity. Uh, and I wish I hadn't been told so much already in the high school seminary <clears throat> about um, you shouldn't feel this, you shouldn't go to parties, you shouldn't um, like music or rock music, rock and roll it was then. Yeah. Um, Still is. <laughs> But still rock and roll. It's still, it's yeah. still rock. Yeah. They still call that that genre. Of music. They still call <laughs> that rock and roll. Uh, and the kids are still listening to it because <laughs> that is not my experience, mm. you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we used to think people who were sexual, they were not like us, celibate, and they would be selfish. Some of the people who are most passionate about the third world issues, and I've been told this directly by them, I have a good sex life, do you Mm. understand? Mm -hmm. But uh, they don't become addicted to it. It's it's the same flow, it's the same uh, caring. Mm. It's a capacity for caring about what you care about. Mm. So uh, I'm not saying to overdo it, you know, because so many in jail are those who had no boundaries to their supposed passion. Mm. It's finding what already the Greeks said was, you know, in medio stat virtus, virtue stands in the middle. Mm. How can you have enough passion without it being totally self-gratifying passion so it destroys you? Mm-hmm. That, that's why the young person normally needs chaperone. Why did you look at me, Richard? (laughs) He's totally just looked at me. (laughs) Because of I was joking with her. Don't record this. Normally needs elders. I didn't want to say chaperones. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Don't record that. No, no. Uh, It's fine. I want a private copy of that. (laughs) Uh, Elders, really, Mm -hmm. to tell them, now watch it. Mm -hmm. Uh, The whole meaning of life is not drinking parties. Let's move to that area, you know, or whatever. It's just you better be capable of something more. So don't make a disjunction, not that I hear you doing it. Mm -hmm. Your danger of your generation is on the other side. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, that's... 
that one really does get into the world of addiction. Yeah, that's it. I think maybe that's that's the crux of the question for me because you know, when we are looking at the world, the flesh and the devil, right? Uh-huh. At the level mm. of the world and the devil, there are these kind of there's a systematic, almost unseen addiction to stress mm-hmm. in well, our that culture, too, yes, yes, and an addiction to success in our generation mm. that leads to this entrepreneurial, constantly on your phone, constantly working, yeah. constantly looking for the next gig, idea, project, to the point where we're not we're not connected mm. to our context, or we're not able to slow down enough to be in a healthy rhythm that can appreciate awe and wonder. And I think your word addiction gets at that more. It is, yeah. it is. And part of what that connects to me for as well is just, it's a continued adolescence past, yeah. past its form, you know, yeah. like it's that infantile society where it's like, can someone please grow up so we can have yeah. you know, these models of different stages of life so that we don't get stuck in this paralyzed, what is success? How can I become that? How do I look good in that way? Right. How often on the evening news haven't we heard in the last two and a half years, are there any adults in the White House? Right. Mm-hmm. Why do we talk that way? It's just a recognition that these responses are teenager responses mm-hmm. coming from heads of state and their entourage. Mm-hmm. It's heartbreaking, mm-hmm. really. Well, that need for validation, <clears throat> really that drives so much of our obsession for success or obsession with work, that kind of climbing mentality. How does contemplation, as you've been talking about, or even as you were talking about in an earlier episode on the emotional life, how does contemplation help us touch on that deeper self that can be um, validated in that kind of existential way? And maybe let me reframe the question. It sure. seems to me that without that touch point of that deepest validation, we can't then value <clears throat> the beauty and awe yes. with awe and wonder yes. that is around us. Yes. You know, I start my little book just this with, with that very point and with a quote from Isaiah that isn't often noticed. It's right at the end of Isaiah, Isaiah 65, 1. I am ready to be approached by those who do not study me. What? I am ready to be found by those who do not seek me. Huh? (laughs) I I say, I am here, I am here, to people who do not even invoke my name. I, I, I so wanted to start this book with that quote, because I believe, and you were heading there, uh, Brie, uh, the basic primal foundational religious intuition is a moment of awestruckness. Mm. Awe, wonder, God, that's beautiful, you know. Mm. In fact, why do we so often say God, Dios, mm. <laughs> when we have such moments as that, mm. you know? uh, I think... It's a recognition that this is a godly moment. Uh, And even totally secular people will say, Dios, Mm. our God, Mm -hmm. God. They don't have to. But um, if your life is absent from awe and wonder, that something is just too good, too right, too much, too timely, you will build your religion on laws and rituals, trying to trump up a moment of awe. And it occasionally works for Catholics anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm sure for Protestants just in a different way. By good music, probably, huh? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, so you're centering in on a good thing. And people who live their lives open to awe and wonder, allowing the moment to gobsmack them. Uh, I think they have a much greater chance of meeting the holy hmm, than a person who just goes to church, almost domesticating the holy, Mm -hmm. making it so commonplace, I'm back in charge. 
And I fear that with the way we we ritualize the Mass, for example. I see uh, people come day after day unprepared for anything new, anything different. And even if you say something new or different, they will fit it into their old boxes. Mm -hmm. I will not be awestruck. Uh, I don't think they're going to get very far. And that's probably why God allows most of your great relationships to begin with a kind of infatuation with mm-hmm. another person. And I don't just mean a sexual mm-hmm. infatuation, just a deep admiration or deep appreciation, uh, which allows you to take your place as a, a student, a learner. If you never do that, nothing new is going to happen, I suspect. Mm-hmm. Nothing new. Yeah. Richard, I want to bring up something of your experience with an icon of awe and wonder of when you were on Oprah recently oh. this past year. <laughs> I saw you the day after. Yeah. I had recorded with her and I said, Richard, what do you, what do, you do the day after you were The day Oprah? after being on. <laughs> and your response. What did I say? You just humbly and, and slowly just said, well, I'm going to go get the mail. Then I'm going to have some lunch. <laughs> like this is normal life. <laughs> that was an extraordinary moment. Yeah. And I was really struck by that because to me, you were speaking to that connection of how the daily mundane experiences also help you connect and embrace those moments of outlandish things that are extraordinary. How, how does that play into, um, into your life and having those rhythms and that, that mundane, um, I'm not calling you mundane, but like most of our lives, you, can. <laughs> you, you fully can, but like most of our yeah. lives are very mundane, yes, right? Yes, yes, yes. And so how does that living at that level where it's paying attention to the small things allow you to almost when those moments of amazement of things that are so out of character with your day to day, open you to awe and wonder whether that's Oprah or just the night sky or a moment of deep intimacy how how does that mundanity hold those moments of awe and wonder? Or maybe mm. it's the other way. Maybe mm. how does that awe and wonder oh. fold back into the mundanity where you can still see the sacredness of it all? Yeah. So I don't look too virtuous. It's really... Uh, you know, one reason, and this is purely by the grace of God, I've, I've sort of learned how to handle power is because I've had it so long. You know, that wonderful experience in Cincinnati that I've often talked about where all these boys are baptized in the Spirit. This is 1973. And after that, I started being treated like a demigod, I think I said. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, larger than life, Richard is so special. Richard is a saint. Richard is this. Richard is that. It made me realize by holding that that projection, and that's what it is, for so many years, that it is just a projection, and I better not take it too seriously, mm-hmm. because projections can be and will be withdrawn just as easily just as easily. The very people who put me on a pedestal uh, of fame or well-knownness or he knows all these famous people, uh, I admit it's, it's still sort of unbelievable to me. I mean, at this table have sat Bono and Edge and Melinda Gates in this very room. And I say, why would they want to listen to me? Um, but I, I'm not over-infatuated by it because I've had it, and I know it passes, and I know they're just like me. Uh, I, uh, they're usually people who come to me out of their own vulnerabilities and let me see that they're not just always their stage persona. Mm-hmm. And I'm speaking this to their credit. Yeah. <clears throat> um, so, yeah, it allows me to handle my own well-knownness with ease, somewhat, I think, I hope, but certainly other people's too. I'm not that impressed by celebrities anymore. Mm-hmm. 
Although I tell all the rest of you because I know you are. I mean, (laughs) I'm introduced anymore. He Uh was on Oprah. Uh He was on Oprah. He touched Oprah. (laughs) And it's okay. And he's being licked by OP right now. What do you want? Do you want to go outside? No. Outside? No. Um, Richard, Did that I, answer your yeah, question? Yeah, I was. I was actually just going to say. I think it's your humility hmm. that that. And, and I'm not okay. I'm not praising you, so don't okay, don't, good. don't take this yes. don't take this in, Richard. I'm just not those actually, moments when he is humble. You're saying, yeah. Well, just exactly. Michael said to me, "Make sure they don't fawn over you." So no fawning. <laughs> don't worry. <laughs> no, no, no fear of no, that. You're here. very loving. That the the humility that you that you demonstrate it that or, orients you to pay attention to a blade of grass mm. with wonder oh, true. is part of what allows you to have these experiences that others are like and that's oh, true that's you it. know yeah. that's true you kind of yeah. you're, you're grounded in the real awe and wonder that's alive in everything so that when you do meet these kinds of icons yeah you're yeah. not you're not you're not it's falling not, out of yourself yeah. no it's not more wondrous than the blade of grass yeah right Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. And that's why I wanted to bring that up, understands bring up that moment because you were you were acknowledging the beauty of the the normalcy. You weren't trying to elevate this moment from the day before where, you know. You're like getting the mail. Yeah. Being with Oprah, you yeah, know. That's yeah. It. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you um, for unpacking my own experience. Yeah. I was introduced to Abraham Joshua Heschel when oh, I was 17. First rate completely fell mm. in love with how he talks about faith. Mm. And, and in his words, it's, it's this orientation to awe and wonder. Uh, but here's one of his quotes, and I wanted to read it for this conversation. He says, Our goal should be to live life in radical amazement, to get up in the morning and look at the world in a way that takes nothing for granted. Everything is phenomenal. Everything is incredible. Never treat life casually. To be spiritual is to be amazed. Wow. Isn't that good? That's, that, that's what I tried to say, and he's saying better. Mm-hmm. Thank you, yeah. Mm-hmm. But it makes me think about how, you know, and, and coming back to your values of devotion and simplicity, it requires us to have a different rhythm of life and to have different lenses to see the world through to live with that kind of radical amazement because as you said we tend to just kind of shut down and get busy don't we we just go through our day-to-day lived experience thinking on that quote richard um i appreciate the way he says to look at the world in a way that takes nothing for granted mm. and how can that help us have an orientation toward the thisness the preciousness that can really see the wonder of this life and as you were saying in an earlier episode, to appreciate, mm. to live with that contemplative gaze mm. that appreciates. How are you asking the how mm-hmm. question? Oh God, I wish I knew. <laughs> I do know how I don't get there. And how I don't get there is when I'm too goal driven, which has been most of my life. Mm. Even though many of my goals were holy goals like to come and do this podcast, you know. So I wake up with a holy goal today, and that gets me here. Uh, now, I, I, my morning prayer was good, but what was it? I was sitting there in the silence with my coffee, Opie at my right hand, I'm petting him. Uh, so, you know, you could almost describe any prayer experience as being held by a, holy goallessness mm. and that alone allows you to drop in to the depth of this here now more than enough whatever it might be so anything that allows you to to temporarily if not permanently i don't know if you ever achieve permanently mm. to let go of these these so demanding goals Mm-hmm. It's the nice thing about being old. I don't have any more goals. I mm. really don't. And I, I just have to pinch myself. That, uh, 
and I don't have to do anything today. <laughs> I, you know, and uh, Vanessa even told me yesterday she's going to send me the final text of the book on evil. Uh, I don't have another book mm. in my head or in my mind or in my heart. Mm. So uh, I'm finding it easier to do than ever in life. Mm. So like the how is... Uh, don't let what are usually humanly created goals define you, even though to some degree you have to do it. And you have to cook for your boys. Mm -hmm. You have to clean up after them. So God understands this. And those are first half of life virtues. But then what, what we hope is all of our faces can be turned outward towards second half of life virtues, where we care about other people's children. But you can't do that. You both have two little ones right now. Another name for everything will continue in a moment. Join us for a series of free virtual sit meditations each Friday from February 16th through March 29th. Each meditation will be broadcast on YouTube at 11 a.m. Pacific time. Register to receive customized emails each week to guide your practice this season. Learn more at cac.org slash lent dash sit. That's cac.org slash l-e-n-t dash s-i-t. Step into a world of depth and purpose with Falling Upward, Life as a Spiritual Journey. Discover wisdom for the two halves of life in CAC's newest online course featuring Richard Rohr. Join us for this 15-week study of Father Richard Rohr's beloved book of the same name. Coursework starts March 27th. Register today at cac.org slash falling up. That's cac.org slash f-a-l-l-i-n-g-u-p. I feel like it, it's connecting for me the, the willfulness and willingness that we talked about oh, in the yeah, first episode, yeah, oh, yeah. where that willfulness seems to be kind of a necessary component of the first half of life yeah, with those goals. Yeah, and then yeah. the willingness, I mean, to hear you say, I, have another I don't have another book. I know. But I mean, just that willingness to, to, to find where, where you're being asked to step into the flow and where you're asked to just being, sit in that holy goallessness. Mm -hmm. Seems like a big shift in the, in the, big in the halves shift. of life. Yeah. Bigger than people realize. Yeah. But even just to taste on and taste it in moments in the first half of life, the, the willfulness seems to be like horse blinders. Like it yeah. narrows the field <laughs> of vision. And then the willingness seems to be when the blinders come off. And there's a sense of expansion in what we see and the context that we're able to put ourselves in. But I'm also thinking about, surprise, surprise, creativity, and how, <laughs> you know, when, <laughs> when we are in the moment of creation, if we're too hooked on a, a specific outcome, it's, it doesn't work. So if I sit down, and that's I, right. you know, if I sit down to write a song, and I know that's the intent, if I'm hanging on too tightly, mm -hmm. it won't come, you know? So there is something about this goallessness heart spaciousness that opens up that becomes playful mm -hmm. playful a, that's a good word that shifts us into an openness to outcome so that you can be in that flow that otherwise you just you can't force it yeah and i feel like this plays into uh the holy fool that archetype yes, of the yes. the wise childlike person who is enamored in the awe and wonder of the world but also the playful nature of god and Richard, I feel like it's not, the holy fool is not as much of an archetype in Christianity today as perhaps it no, once it was it or the way it is in other traditions. What do you think we're missing out with that? Like how do, what does the holy fool have to teach us about awe and wonder in Christianity? You know, I know it's an overused phrase, but to not take yourself too seriously is uh, we're, we're told it's a sign of mental and emotional health. Mm. to be able to let other people poke fun at you, to be able to poke fun at yourself, is, is, uh, 
is the holy fool. Now, there have to be other shapes to it. I'm sure there are. You know, I almost didn't get ordained. I've never told this story. No. On April 1st, 1970. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> I really like where this is going. Uh, of course, in 1970, even we as seminaries were so free. The whole Catholic Church was blown open. And the faculty just stepped back. We were the millennials that you are now, just very creative and very free and very excited. I created a feast of fools in the main chapel where I had just been <laughs> ordained a deacon. And it had a beautiful baldacano over it, uh, modern art, very beautifully done. And as people entered the church, now I know this wouldn't work anymore, but everybody was handed a beach ball. <laughs> oh, I'm so ashamed of that. No, it's good. Keep going. Don't and stop. Or, you know, what are those things you should blow at a party? Straw. Oh. Oh, like the, the, that, that roll out? Yeah. What, do you call uh, what are those things? called? You know, the paper things yes, that unroll like as you roll them favor. out? Yeah, party I feel like favor. this is the version of the football metaphor. We're going to spend 10 minutes now trying to figure <laughs> oh, out I what hope so. this is called. What is uh, it? I had some piece of music playing fully over the, the microphone system. I was so glad none of the faculty was there. Because I was a deacon, I was given this freedom to create this liturgy for the whole student body without any of the faculty attending. Little did I know, some of them were watching from the upstairs balcony, which you couldn't see into the balcony, you know. And, uh, well, people loved it. It was one of the first dramatic sermons I ever gave. I don't know what I said, but I was teased about that for years. Out Here's the one who created the Feast of Fools. Uh, but it was on this very thing of around this altar where we are always so dead serious, almost morose, no one smiles at the altar. Let's just change the rules for once. Why would God mind us? And they started throwing the beach ball off the baldacano and blowing their uh, party favors. And uh, the faculty that was watching called me in the next day. And they said, uh, uh, Friar, this is not acceptable. Right? And they were probably right. Now, it worked. And that's why they couldn't totally kick me out or refuse me ordination, but they did let me know it better not happen again. I was just too much of a hotshot. I was too sure of myself uh, because I was uh, ordained in this wonderful time where it was all opening up, opening up, opening up. And um, now, how am I answering any of your questions? Well, it's a... it's a beautiful way of, of dipping your toe into the the holy fool. The holy fool, yeah. To not take yourself yeah. so seriously. I mean, I think it's marvelous that you were well, just worked, like, yeah. On that know? occasion, April first, nineteen seventy, it worked. Mm. Uh, and so that you, was the mood of the times, yeah. uh, and we had a wise enough faculty that they could assess the mood of the times. It brings to mind too, I think it was Merton who talked about what is serious to God or what is played to us may be very serious to God. Mm. And so how do we delight in that playfulness? I don't know that I've heard that. And so I I wonder, yeah, just to kind of further that is how, how does, like, what are we missing? Because there's just not a lot of that kind of risk taking in the spirit of playfulness that God is also a God of delight and on, on, wonder even in humor and even the lighter side of things knowing that Mm -hmm. yes the air is full of absurd absurdity and evil but like to be able to bring in that spirit of lightness what do you feel like we're we're missing in christianity when we don't allow for um the holy fool to also have its day you know they say humor is uh there always has to be the presentation of some incongruity, some pulling back the veil, that's phony, that's not real, we don't really believe it. Those are the things we laugh at, Mm. the exposure of incongruity. And if if religion has been defined for you as all first box, order, 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 everything is 
is coherent, congruous, if that's a word. Uh, there was no room for incongruity. Therefore, there's no room for humor. Mm -hmm. uh, there's no ability to recognize my eccentricity, my flaws, my uh, woundedness. That's how what it morphed into. And we all were forced to play this game of perfection that wasn't true, and we knew it wasn't true. And even the faculty in my time felt they owed us that, mm. to always be wearing the habit, to genuflect perfectly, to uh, perform, and perform is the right word, mass, to perfection, this was going to train us. And I don't think they knew, because they were trained the same way, that it made us not feel close to them, because they were, they were, intimate means to be capable of being close to. And they never gave any capacity for intimacy, mm. for closeness, which means usually realness. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And when, when there's no realness, I have to say, we mocked a lot of our faculty, even though most of them were very wise guys in their own field. Uh, we, uh, they weren't father figures to us. Like it's important for you, well, you've talked about this as parents, that they see your faults and that you admit them and ask for forgiveness. Mm -hmm. And if you catch them, making fun of you when they're teenagers, which they probably will, if not before. <laughs> Mine will never. <laughs> There's nothing to make fun yeah, of. I think mine have already started. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, mine started a long time God, ago. God, we mocked the faculty. Mm -hmm. Oh, that was the big entertainment. In the closed system, mm -hmm. we had every priest's eccentricity down <laughs> to a T, you know. It was the only way we could survive. You know? But that's so interesting because when I think about the faculty here at the Center for Action and Contemplation, you you all have a really good time together. Yeah. Like you laugh yeah, a lot, yeah, you do. make fun of yourselves, you make yeah. fun of each other, Hope and there so. there is something about that humor that makes makes us all relatable to each other. It like yes. opens the door to yes. relationship mm -hmm. because it makes us just relax into our own absurdity and our own intensity and. I'm thinking about my kids and how much they make me laugh on a regular basis, especially Rowan, my youngest. He's he's so silly to the point where he does this like bodily humor. You know, oh. like well, he'll hike up his shorts way up to his chest and he'll like just make silly faces and just walks around and just he loves to make us laugh and it's part of the gift that I think he he brings me out of my own intensity and my own pension for you know, drama or being stuck in my thoughts and something I'm reflecting on when it comes to humor is that laughter, it's like a physical, we're shaking our bodies. Mm. And, you know, I think we've talked about this before that animals shake their bodies when they're in trauma, that that's a way that they kind of allow, shake it off. They shake it off. They're like allowing their bodies to process the intensity of the adrenaline. that's just kind of gone through the system. And I don't know that I've made this connection before, but when we cry, we're shaking mm. and our bodies are moving. But we're also doing that same kind of physical motion when we're laughing. And I wonder what it is about laughter that allows us to so fully relax that maybe, you know, humor ought to be a contemplative practice. Don't they say there's a hormonal release when you yes. really laugh, laugh not yeah. nervous yeah. laughter, but real laughter yeah. mm -hmm. that does reduce stress? In your body. Yeah. yeah. Well, and also, if, if we're not willing to, um, I, I'm, again, thinking about creativity. If we're not willing to have a sense of silliness about ourselves, then we don't ever have the courage to leap forward into something new. Because, mm. you know, I'm just thinking about dancing, for instance. Mm -hmm. And you can't dance if you're terrified of looking dumb. Mm. You, you just can't do it. Like right. you're, you're going to look like an ass either way. Like just, just go with it. But that there's something about leaping into that with a sense of relaxation. Yep. I'm probably looking really ridiculous right now. 
That is joining the flow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What humor does and what intimacy does is give people a handle on you. Mm. When you're always proper, there's no handle except conformity, conformity, conformity. But I, I don't get at you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I don't get at you. Mm. So you're saying, I'm just repeating what you're saying better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, thank you. Uh, so if I, I just think about like the people I'd rather hang out with are people who make me laugh than those who I think are the smartest or the deepest. It's those mm-hmm. that I can connect to that human level because it does open up spaces of death and intimacy mm-hmm. that couldn't happen if I know whatever I share is not going to be taken in that same spirit. Yes, yes, yes. Well put. Mm-hmm. Well, continuing on with thinking about awe and wonder as a practice, even in the midst of so much heaviness, and systemic oppression and all the hard things we've been talking about, one of the things that actually fills me with so much hope and awe and wonder is this human creative spirit that manifests and expresses itself in the arts. And for me, it's music. And and um, I'm so curious about what it is about the connecting power of music. Do you have that experience with the arts, Richard, in any way mm. that they help you feel like you're connecting with awe and wonder? I do with the visual arts. I don't know how I got disconnected from music. Because we, we began every day with Gregorian chant, but it was we had to do it perfectly, and there was so much work in it. Mm. And we didn't have a chance to listen to recorded music much in the early seminary. Uh, so maybe I lost that key period. Mm. I'm always ashamed to admit that, that music, I can live without it. Mm-hmm. If I choose, you know, I, I, I choose silence over almost any music. Uh, and I consider that a fault, a limitation. Most people are not that way, thank God. Mm. Most people are supremely stirred by music. But for me, it's more uh, fine art, sculpture, architecture, when my eyes can see something that's lovely. Uh, those are the art forms I guess I would prefer. Uh, is that what you were asking mm-hmm. me? Yeah, yeah. If you've, what, what expressions of art help you connect with awe and wonder? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then you can see how it's easy for me to move beyond that to the palette of a landscape yeah. or my yes. backyard or right. this magnificent tree, whatever it might be. Yeah. It is the visual. Oh. So Richard, as a way to close, you know, we've been talking about awe and wonder and laughter. Is there an experience of a deep belly laughter of that true endorphin releasing, you know, you can't contain yourself, afraid you might die from laughter moment that has brought you <laughs> into that connective light? You're asking the wrong person, but actually there are some. That bright, where it is, you know, that entering that flow of that playfulness of God, that playfulness of the universal Christ. You know, uh, there's a person in my life who uh, you would know, Paul, uh, Stephen Gamble, who create, helped me create the rituals yeah. for um, uh, the MROP. <clears throat> because we met so young, because for 10 seasons we were up there putting the MROP together all alone. Now they have a team of 20 people. We did it all. Nobody else, just the two of us in in our youth when I had a lot of energy. But he can tease me. Uh, He's just very skilled with, with humorous words. He can almost always bring me to belly laughter. And I don't know what, it's sarcasm it's making fun of me. I remember one time uh, we're driving around Ghost Ranch and he knew I wanted to see Georgia O'Keeffe's house. Have you ever driven down? Yeah, yeah. I just up there a few weeks ago. Oh, really? Yeah. Do they let you go now? Into her house. Not that time. A time before I was actually let into her house. Yeah. No kidding. About six or seven years ago. Is someone living there now or what? Not that time. I don't know if they keep that under wraps or not. I had a friend who was a friend who had a friend on staff. So I yeah, was just let friends, in, I was just let into the group because I knew somebody. Well, he knew I wanted to go yeah. down there. We were out driving on our truck, picking up his truck at that time. 
uh, sticks and for the rituals. And uh, he, he moves to this high-toned voice. He was an actor. That was, you know. And he, he begins a monologue without skipping a beat. Sally forth, Richard. Uh, do not hesitate. You know, I don't know. Just high for falutin phrases nonstop for 10 minutes the great goal is ahead of you georgia o'keefe's house he just, I, uh, and he still has the capacity to do that uh-huh. he trusts me so much that i will never make fun of him or think less of him mm-hmm. and i do the same with him mm-hmm. uh, i'm sure you have your earlier friends are often those kind of friends yeah the friends that come later have a harder time getting into that position. That the friends that you knew in college, kind of, well, that's what Steve Gamble is for me. Mm-hmm. Apparently, I am for him. Um, for some reason, it's the synergy that I let him make me laugh. Yeah. Yeah. I let him say, he, we used to call it reductio ad absurdum. Uh, That's what you used to say, a Latin phrase? Uh, no, <laughs> no, we did. Right. Yeah. Back in my day when we spoke Latin, <laughs> we said. You, you all know people like this. Well, you do it a little bit, Paul. And Michael does it too. Michael does it a lot, in fact. You say something silly to Michael or to you, and within a heartbeat, you say something one step sillier. Mm. <laughs> That's I love cool. the absurd. Yeah, yeah, I love to take it. Reductio ad absurdum. I'll outdo you. Yeah, yeah. It's a very clever form of humor, and I don't know how that you both do it very quickly, very quickly. I love it because it doesn't give it time for me to take it into my head and to become serious about it. But that makes me laugh. Mm. That makes me laugh. I have sat at my computer some evenings after a paragraph from Steve Gamble. And he says, I wouldn't send this to anybody else <laughs> but you. But it's just his imagination just going wild, yeah. you know. I am your new travel agent, Richard, and I have created this tour for you. And then he'll go on and on. And it doesn't mean anything, but it means friendship and love. Mm-hmm. And a desire uh, not to both take ourselves too seriously. Do you know Stephen well? Or? I don't know him well, no, well, well enough to know that that's his uh, that's personality. His style. Yes. yes, that's his style. He's a four, you'll be happy to know. Oh, what? Fours can be funny? Yes, they can. <gasps> yeah, yes. Yeah. It's their other way of being special. <laughs> yeah, sure. I was waiting for that little... There they're still little being thing. special. There it is. <laughs> well, I really appreciate this conversation, Richard, because I think, you know, it's easy for us to get very heady in, in our conversations about contemplation or even in thinking about these very powerful metaphysical concepts right and yet here is this practice of joy and enjoyment that puts us in touch with relationship but also puts us in touch with awe and wonder and it all seems to be connected awe wonder relationship hope Mm. uh the possibility for creativity for moreness and this i don't know this conversation has been so um affirming and i i just appreciate it so deeply because it it does kind of lighten up the load a bit of how we think about contemplation or how we think about living into the universal christ uh in a way that feels a little bit less heady Mm -hmm. celebrating the playfulness of god and not just uh the depth and uh knowledge that is there but like I think God would rather play with it at times than have another debate about some theological notion. Mm-hmm. You know, Carl Rahner, who I quote so much, yeah. he had a brother Jesuit priest, uh, Hugo Rahner. And to my knowledge, the only book he wrote was Homo Ludens, means uh, humorous man. <laughs> and he that was probably his escape from his brother's brilliance. Uh-huh. <laughs> Because it was an entire book 
on the theology of playfulness. Wow. Oh, wow. Yeah, homo ludens. Wow. <laughs> but I never read it, I'm sorry to say. Only a runner could title a book like that in Latin. Right. right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> then it takes on much more character. This is know? funny, but in Latin, it's, in Latin, <laughs> it's serious. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, thank you, Richard. Yes, thank thanks, Richard. you. You make it fun. And here are a couple of voicemails from our listeners. Hello, Bree, Paul, and Father Richard. My name is Karen, and I'm calling from Cape May, New Jersey. Father Richard, my question comes from page 247 in your book, where you say, You are taken to happiness. You cannot find your way there by willpower or cleverness. I have been retired for a few years now, and I finally learned to turn off the autopilot with people I meet and to be more present and unhurried in those interactions. And what I've been discovering especially with people I hardly know or don't know at all, is that I often walk away from these experiences with a feeling of inner fullness that's mostly joyful but unmistakably edged with sadness at the same time, even if there was nothing sad about the encounter. If I sit with a feeling for a time, it almost always causes me to tear up. And I'm wondering, is this being taken to happiness? And is it natural to feel this combination of joyful gratitude and palpable sadness? If so, why the sadness, and what do you think it represents? I often cannot determine that. If you could comment on this, I would appreciate it. And thank you all so much for this podcast and what it brings to our further understanding of the universal Christ. Wow, beautiful, beautiful. Here's my guess, and of course, I, I can't know your exact motivation. Karen was the name, right? Karen, uh, you live in a beautiful place. I've been to Cape May. Anyway, what you've likely experienced is intimacy. Now, the very word means to have moved in to fear which I think is through in Timor, or through fear, into the deeper depth of a relationship, or a moment, or a person. Now, when you move through your fears into a moment of honest connection, for just no special reason except respect itself, love itself, that will bring forth, you said it perfectly, both emotions of joy and I'm not sure why, but yes, sadness. Because you wish all of your life had been this way. What you've missed out on. And you know you've touched upon the beauty of another person and yet you have only touched upon it. Uh, you you, uh, you know there's many more stories or depth, or maybe you saw sadness in someone's eyes. You, intimacy means you, you've gone through your fear to encounter the true person, the depths of the person, intimus, again in Latin means the interior of a person. Uh, and that contains both charges, like you have on a battery, you know, the negative charge and the positive charge. If you stay on the surface, you'll normally, uh, at best, if you experience any charge at all, it'll be one or the other. But when you go into the interior, uh, you become intimate in an honest moment of self-disclosure. And that's usually what intimacy is, mutual and comfortable self-disclosure. You're born at a new level of communion, at a new level of of satisfaction, at a new level of joy, and yet sadness that more relationships are not this way. My years on the road when I run through airports all over the world, I remember my common, very common experience in airports was that so many people had such a ravaged look on their face. That was the only word that would come to mind, ravaged. And maybe airplanes and airports do that to us. But you would hope 
this wasn't the whole meaning of their life? Or what do they have to give their children? Or what do they have to give their partner? Or the world? So you're making contact. That's what it tells me. That you can receive from the other person both the joy of an encounter and the sadness that it's, it's never complete or it's never enough. Or I touched not just upon her uh, sadness, but a bit of my own, usually. <laughs> it gives you permission. They, like they say, when you go to a funeral, every funeral you attend all your life is a preparing for your own. And that's why we all cry. <laughs> we're, we're sad about dying, I guess. I don't think it's just that. But, um, yeah. Every life experience is a mirror for uh, self-reflection. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there seems to be something about sadness that is the portal through which we touch each other's wounds. You know, that yes. it, it, I lo- first of all, I don't think I've ever heard you say intimacy as moving in through, through the fear, fear, which is, I could, just, is I could just hang out with that line for a while. <laughs> but um, I've, I've been reflecting lately on the icon of, of the sacred heart. I am so drawn to that. it. Because yes. <laughs> I keep bringing it up. You're becoming a Catholic. Oh, geez. Oh, what, what's happening? Um, but the idea of the wound as being sacred, it's not to glorify suffering, no, but no. it's to say that it's through the wounds that we become so vulnerable to one another. Because as we experience our woundedness and can see it, it's like we... we I, I also love this phrase you've been using, that we join the club of imperfection. Mm-hmm. And as we do that, we're more capable of allowing other people to accept their imperfection too. And that seems to be a part of intimacy as like that mirroring of saying, you are enough as you are, perfectly imperfect. Um, and, and we experience that as we give it and we um, experience it as it's given to us. There's a mutuality to that. Yeah. Thank you. That's what we would dream of for church, right? To be a yeah. place of That's that right. level of belonging and intimacy. Um, yeah, sorry, Corey just flashed the number at me. I lost my train of thought. <laughs> <laughs> Way to go, Corey. And no question. <laughs> That's totally fine. Richard told me to yell. So. <laughs> that, that's a, that works. All right, here we go. Last one for the day. Hi, my name is Sarah, and I just had a question regarding interfaith relationships. I was born and raised in a very conservative, orthodox... uh, Just going to pause this for one second. We got a number of these about people talking about dating across interfaith. Oh, good. This one is cut off at the end. Like, it just... It ends abruptly. I don't know what happened, but it was the best one, like the clearest one oh, of them. So okay. That's why it, it is that way. Mm. So just before you respond, just want you to know that this is kind of more of a representative question. Religion, Christianity, and, you know, now that I'm an adult and I've really explored my spirituality, what that means, and reading the book, The Universal Christ, and, and others, I've learned to, you know, realize that, Truth from God doesn't only come from one avenue through Christianity, but through multiple avenues, whether it's other religion or just your own spiritual path. Um, So I'm currently with someone who is of the Muslim faith, and I know that this is the person I want to be with long term, but I know that I'll face a lot of backlash from from family and friends. I was hoping if if you have any advice or tips on, you know, how to have these conversations when, you know, I get backlash from my family and friends. And, you know, if, the, if there are any scriptures that can help me even confirm to myself my own truth. You know, sometimes when people put doubts in you, you start having doubts a little bit and you start having that uncomfortable feeling. And I was just hoping if you have any, you know, advice or anything, any reasoning that that could really, that I could use to be able to make people see my point of view um, because not a lot of people that, you know, whether it's family or friends, have evolved in the way they think about those relationships. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, sadly, that question was just cut off because of the, the time limit. But the, the, 
the gist of the question was there about interfaith relationships and how does one approach that uh, amidst the, the cultural waters they swim in with family and friends. And what was her name? She didn't give it. I don't think she gave it, no. 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 We're all suffering from the misuse, the understandable misuse of religion to create social order, to create community. Not that that isn't a part of it, but um, it, it held us together into tribes and ethnic groupings. That's probably the function it had to serve uh, in, in the first 2,000 years. We, needed, we didn't know who we were personally, but we knew who we were collectively. You didn't have to have almost any self-knowledge, really. All you knew is you were a Catholic, you were a Lutheran, you were a Baptist, and that answered all the questions. You can see why we stayed there so long. But we've entered a time where the human person is becoming so much more individuated so much more aware of his or her identity, his or her uh, deeper meanings and needs. It's creating a much more complex society. And, uh, you know, the scripture that came to mind while you were talking was one, is it the 10th chapter of John? I'm not sure, but it's somewhere in that area where he says, I have other sheep who are not of this fold. Have we reflected on that, you know? That they don't have to belong to our fold to be his sheep. Oh, wow. What made made us think? It's a marvelously liberating line. And I offer it to you as something that you could use for maybe family or friends who are going to misunderstand. Um, You might also, I don't mean to get too dang sophisticated, but you've heard us speak of spiral dynamics and how history has gone through these levels of unfolding, evolution, awareness. Uh, Much of history uh, for the last thousand years was called the blue level. That's where I was raised. Maybe it's where you were raised too. Uh, the blue level understands everything, everything through the lens of is it for my tribe or is it threatening to my tribe? Much of our politics is still trapped at that level. I'm a Republican no matter what the Republicans say or do. I'm a Democrat no matter what the Democrats say or do. This is what you do when there's no self there. There's no individuated conscience or consciousness. So the reason I bring that in is don't don't expect perfect uh, response from all your family and friends. If their uh, level of consciousness is blue or less, uh, they'll think you're a heretic, a sinner, wrong, misguided, cultish, or getting too psychological. Uh, They'll pull out whatever word is threatening to their worldview. So uh, I'm sure this is why Jesus said, I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. Mm -hmm. It's hard to grow up. It really is. You pay a big price for growing up. Uh, it's such a big price that many populations, let's take the gay people, just decided, okay, I'll pretend. <laughs> and that, that's been true in almost all the cultures of the world. I'll pretend. Because if you grow up, if you face your truth, whatever your truth might be, a lot of people are going to reject you or hate you. Now, yours isn't uh, likely a a gender issue, but it's a faith club. What faith club is the right one? Hmm? Well, the right one is the one that leads you to love. If it leads you to love of God and love of neighbor, 
beat a path to the door. That's where you want to live your life. And even if your mother, I got to make it dramatic, even if your mother rejects you, you've got to endure that for a while. You're on to a, a search for truth that、uh, you can't let go of. You dare not let go of. And that's it for today's episode of Another Name for Everything with Richard Rohr. This podcast is produced by the Center for Action and Contemplation, thanks to the generosity of our donors. The beautiful music you're listening to was brought to you by Will Reagan. If you're enjoying this podcast, consider rating it, writing a review, or sharing it with a friend to help create a bigger and more inclusive community. To learn more about Father Richard and to receive his free daily meditations in your electronic mailbox, visit cac.org. To learn more about the themes of the Universal Christ, visit universalchrist.org. In the high desert of New Mexico, we wish you peace and every good. Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events, at www.cac.org.